journey of repentance. Uh, and truly, it's, it's a journey. Truly, it's, it's not just one thing. And it's not just another thing. But it's truly a journey that adds to our relationship with God. As we, as we come, we've, we've, we've come to the point where David admitted his sin. He said, I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. And he turns to God and he says, God, against you only I've sinned and done this great evil. And it was a great evil. It was an evil of not only committing adultery with Bathsheba, but having her husband then killed to cover up the scheme. It's also David admitting that he's not righteous of himself. There is no righteousness to be found in him apart from what God has given him by grace. And we now come to the fact that God has required that David be righteous. And by extension, this is true of us. That we are righteous not just in what we do and in the things we can say on the outside, but that he wants truth in the inner man. He wants truth inside. The place where sin rules in the natural man is a place where God wants truth to reign. It is the place whereby our fall in the Garden of Eden, we lost the ability to love God in truth. We lost the ability to serve Him with completeness of heart. And every sin in the universe has come from that fall. And what we want to see here is David coming to the understanding that this is him. This is me. And as we come to verse 10, which is where we will begin this morning, David is, has confessed his sin and he's asked for thorough cleansing. And he's now, he, he, he's now asking God, for a clean heart. Last, last time we looked at man's deepest need, his greatest problem. And that's the problem and need of the heart. The evil heart that is in the natural man. Today we want to look at God's answer to man's deepest need. Let's, let's read this from verse 10 through Verse 14. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not take your Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, I missed the line. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous 
spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall speak, sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning before your word, we humbly ask for your spirit to open the truth of it to our hearts and our hearts to its truth. That, Lord, we may receive it with gladness as from you and that we may rejoice in your goodness for us and seek for what you have seek for that which you have given us from you and from your word that that joy of our salvation that new heart that renewed spirit we ask this in Jesus name amen well let's begin here with the fact with the verse 10 here where he says create in me a clean heart O God the first point we want to look at is the clean heart created by God for His glory. You see, the biggest problem, yes, it's a huge sin that David hid his sin. It's a huge sin that for, so, for, for a long time nobody knew what was going on. But it's a, and it's also a huge sin that he committed the adultery. And it's a huge sin that he killed Uriah. But friends, the greatest sin of all was the fact of that he shame he brought shame to the glory of God. Now, there's a sense in which you cannot drag down the glory of God. You can't mar the glory of God. His intrinsic glory always is, always will be what it is. God is eternal. He doesn't change. But David here in the in the testimony that he left in the, in the minds, in the hearts, in the lives of those nations around who did not know the Lord. The testimony was a dragging down, a smearing, a marring in their eyes of the glory of God. It was a dimming of the glory of God in the eyes of His people. It was a hindrance to His family. There's huge consequences that came because of his sin. And so the biggest problem was that he, 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 he messed with the glory of God. And it's that way for all of us, friends. A greatest issue of our sin is that we are sinning against God himself. And we're... we're, we're putting a smudge and a smear and a stain, if you please, on His glory. Now, we're not actually doing that in heaven because He's untouched. He's unblemished in heaven. But we are smearing the testimony. The, when, 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 when Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer that we're to pray, hallowed be your name. You're esteem, esteem the name of God as holy. And when we who are to be the children of God, 
to lift up the, the honor and the glory of Christ. We don't honor God. We don't glorify Him. We do things that take away from the, the estimation of His holiness and glory that it should, as it should be. Then we are violating what Scripture says for us to esteem Him as holy. And so this morning, David has an understanding that there's an issue in his heart. And until and unless the Lord is doing a work in will do a work in his heart, nothing's going to change. You reform the outside, you can dress him differently, you can put him in a different situation, in a different place, remove him from this place, and he'll turn around and do it again in a different form and in a different way, unless the heart's changed. David understood that. He understood that the heart of his problem was the problem of his heart. And so what he's asking God for, excuse me, <clears throat> he's asking God for a new heart that God makes. Let's understand that the new man is a creation of God, just like when God said in the beginning, let there be light and there was light. God created the light, Genesis 1-1 says. So when a new man is created or a new woman is created in Christ, that new creation is a work of God. It's just as much a work of God as the creation that we see is a work of God. We have 2 Corinthians 5-17, you don't have to turn there, says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The new creation is a, is a work of God. You see, the devil can take that which God has already created, and he can mess with it. He can, he can rearrange it. He can, he can take advantage of it. But he can't create. You can take what God has created and you can rearrange it. You can, you can add things to it. You can take things away from it. And you can make something. But the true creator is God. You know, the, the, a beautiful uh, marble sculpture is done by a talented artist who takes the chisel and the hammer and, and, and takes away everything that's not what the sculpture is supposed to be. But he didn't create the whole thing. The material was created by God. His artistic ability was created by God. The raw materials for his tools were created by God. God is the true and original creator. So as you look at what this... What David is asking for, he's asking for God to do his work of creation here. And friends, let's understand that our sin is so radically uh, present in us from birth that when David says, create in me a clean heart, the only way we'll have a, cre a, a clean heart is if God creates it in us. That is the only way that there will be cleanness in our being. 
Again, you can change a lot of things outwardly. You can even, you can even sing the right songs that make you feel clean. You can even say the prayers that, that turn your heart to, to, you know, turn your emotions to God. But until the Lord is doing His work of creation within that's unseen by us, there is no clean heart. We're left only with what the natural man has to offer. And that's a sinful heart condemned by God. Rebellious against God. Holding out against God. Hateful toward God and toward fellow men. You see, it's a reshaping. It's a remaking. And it goes all the way down to the soul's desires and intentions. You know, David here is understanding that this has to be, there has to be a root change if there's going to be a fruit change. That unless there is a, a, a change in the nature, there will be no change in the substance. And brothers and sisters, that's what we must understand about ourselves. And every time we run against sin in our life, it's not just a matter of cleaning this little thing up and buffing this up a little bit, hanging some fruit on over here. It's a matter of going to the heart. And I think we forget sometimes how radically depraved the, that we are at the, at the core of, our, of the human heart. And let me just say this. The more, the more we understand about the depravity of the human heart, the greater the grace of God is to save us from that depravity. We will not see the grace of God as it is, as glorious and beautiful and magnificent as He is, if we still are holding on to the fact that we have some good that we can, we can stand on. You know, when Jesus went to the, to the house of Simon, he, he, this, this, the, the, the lady came in and began to anoint his feet and wash uh, uh, with, with oil and washed him, her, his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And, he, and, and you remember at the end, you know, Jesus tells about the man who, who, who had two servants and one owed him a huge unpayable debt and he, he the other one owed him just a small amount, and he frankly forgave them both. And he tells, he asks Simon, he says, now let me ask you, which will love him more? And Simon said, well, the one he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have rightly answered. You're thinking right. And friends, it's when we don't know that we are sinners that we're in trouble. Grace does not mean what it ought to mean to us if we don't see ourselves as sinners. The pearl of great price shines best on the backdrop of the black velvet of sin. Christ was given as a pearl of great price 
for the darkness and blackness of the sin that lies at the heart of man. And what David here is wanting, he says, I need to be not just reformed. I need to be morally and ethically made clean. That is a work of God. Secondly, let's notice in the second part of the verse, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This renewing is a restoring. It is a, it is a bringing back. It is a, a, a turning away from and a turning to. You know, we've all seen the junkyards around where the old cars are sitting there and, you know, sometimes somebody will go to a junkyard and he will, he will pull a car out of that junkyard and he will begin to do what they, we call a restoration project. You know, he replaces the wheels and he replaces the frame and body parts and the motor and he restores it back to its original, back to its original nature, back to its original, uh, what it was originally. And so God does with the man and woman who has fallen from in, in, in his walk with God and he's destroyed his life by sin. Sin is destructive. What David is experiencing here is he sees the waste that sin has made of his life. He's seeing how that God has, has, has no obligation to salvage him. How that God has no uh, uh, right to have mercy upon him. But God, out of his own love and out of his own mercy, he's asking for God, restore. Bring restoration. And what does he ask for a restoring of? He asked for a restoring of a firmness, a steadfastness, and that's what steadfastness is here. A firmness or a stability with God. It is in his soul, it's the consistency that David knows he needs in his walk with God. We have a lot of people today who want to, who want to go to the highs, and they want a, a high emotional experience. Don't get me wrong, we're emotional people. And, and, and it's, it's not wrong to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, we're going we're to have some scriptures here where it says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. But when we want to just live on the candy of this life, we're going to find that we get our sugar drops. We're going to have a time when we crash. And we go looking for another high, and then we crash. And then we look for another high, and then we crash. And I want to tell you, this, the, the, the Christian life is about steadfastness, not about getting a high. The Christian life is about steadfast love of our Lord, continuing to build us up, continuing to draw us near, and we continually have sweet fellowship with Him as we walk. That's what the Christian life is about. And if we're going to pursue all the glamour and all the glitz 
and all the, the stuff that makes us happy for a time. It's going to ruin us from being able to, to know the steadfast relationship of Jesus Christ in our spirits. I have watched, I have watched people I have known who pursued emotional claims of Christianity and, and even going beyond what Scripture says and, 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 and refuting some things that Scripture's trying to refute some things that Scripture says. And it ends in shipwreck. And David here is saying that, Lord, renew to me a steadfast spirit, a, a, a solid, firm spirit, something that, that's not blown around by every wind of desire. David's acknowledged that he has lost his stability with God. He's not the stable man that he was at one point in his life. And that he needs the work of God. He needs God to do a work that would make him internally strong in Christ. That would make him resolute. That would bring conviction. That would bring solidness into his life. This steadfast spirit is also a willing spirit. It's a willing spirit, a spirit that's willing to go after the Word of God, to pursue God with the whole heart. This has to do with, with God having put His Spirit upon David for the purpose of leading the children of Israel. Many times when the Holy Spirit came upon His people in the Old Testament, it was so that they would perform a certain task, to do a certain thing. Let me read you a few verses from Exodus 35. And this is when they're walking, they're going through the wilderness, the children of Israel are traveling through, and God tells Moses, I want you to build me a tabernacle. Here's how I want it built. And there are people in the congregation that I have already chosen, and I'm going to give them a portion of the Spirit so that they will build these tools, these, these utensils, all the things in for the tabernacle, they will, they will do these things exactly the way he wants them. Verse 21, Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments, and they came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings, nose rings, rings and necklaces, jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. So Moses calls for an offering. And they bring all these things that they had taken from the Egyptians. And they bring them together. And all those whose heart was stirred whose spirit was willing, their own spirit, God worked in their spirit and he made them willing. And they came and they gave. And, he taught, and, and they came and they gave their talents. 
They gave of what they, they were able to do because the Spirit of God was upon them. And David here is asking God for a steadfast spirit within him that he might lead his people the way God intended. Let me ask you this morning, has God created a new heart within you? Are you just satisfied with the old heart? Is the old heart good enough for you? Friend, if the old heart's good enough for you, you don't know where you're at. You're in danger. You're in trouble. And you're in trouble with God. Not with me. Not with the rulers of the land. Not with the church. But you're in trouble with God. And He must create a new heart within you if you would be saved. Many times we spend our time looking, making the old heart look good. Dressing up the old man. Trying to spruce up the old flesh. Friends, it's just the shell. Brother Terry talked about the shell. It's just the shell that's going to pass away and one day be put in a grave. It's the inside. It's who we are. So I want to ask you, has God gave you, gave you and created in you a new heart? Are you chasing every new desire that comes along? Every new thing that comes down the road? Or are you steadfastly following after God? Are you pursuing Him consistently? See, if you're steadfastly pursuing God, the winds of temptation and trouble that come along, they don't affect you. David sinned because he was in his house doing nothing. Steadfastness is not doing nothing. Steadfastness is following God. Has He given you that steadfast spirit? Or are you trying to just be good enough on your own? See, sometimes I think we have a problem. I think sometimes we have a problem that we're, if I could just get inside the church door, or if I could just make it inside the door, I'm done. I'll sit back and relax. That's not the Christian life. I fear for you if that's your idea of what it means to be a Christian. I don't think you're a Christian. You know, it's kind of like the preacher said, we all want to come in and we want to stand inside the door. But the door gets crowded after a while. Have you considered this morning that maybe your life, in your life, you need to move on? You need to follow steadfastly after God. And would you follow steadfastly after God? Maybe more people would be willing to come in to the kingdom of God. You see, a lack of growth in the church hinders the ability for the gospel to go out. The gospel comes because people have steadfastly followed the Lord Jesus Christ and there, as we see later, they're teaching others the way. 
You're not going to teach something you're not doing yourself. You're not going to be effective if you don't follow steadfastly. Repentance comes with a heart to steadfastly follow the Lord. I'll set my eyes upon him. I'm not going to turn to the right or the left. And yes, I agree we at times have struggles. We have problems. We have times that we need to, we need to come back to this repentance again. But true repentance puts a desire in our hearts to be steadfast with the Lord. If there's no desire in your heart to walk steadfastly in the Lord, question, am I in the Lord? Am I in Christ? It's, it's, a, it's a valid question that must be answered from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit within, within your heart. Second, secondly, verse 11, the cry of the one who needs to remain in God's presence. The cry of the one who needs to remain in God's presence. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. This, is a, this casting away is, is, is a throwing out or a, a, a removal from the place where he dwelt with God. The sweet psalmist of Israel was, was used to having fellowship with God. And as he had fellowship with God, he was able to write the hymn book of the scriptures. But friends, as we look here, we find that there are two ways that David asks for the Spirit not to be removed from him. And what, let's look first here. He, he, he's, he's realizing that this whole thing of God's, of whether God will use him and keep him and, and build him up or whether God will discard him is up to God, not him. It, it's based on the mercy and goodness of God. And so he comes to God knowing that he's not got any bargaining grounds here with God. But he just simply begs for the mercy of God and says, Lord, I need you not to throw me away. It is of every Christian who has dealt with their sin. Every Christian has dealt with their sin. So if you're a believer in Christ, you understand what sin is. And you know the weight of that sin. And every sinner that comes to Christ gets tempted with the ability to look back and say, and think to themselves, how worthless I am for having participated in my sin. But, but, but friends, if you're saved this morning, if God has worked that Brought, wrought that clean heart within you, created you in you a clean heart. He's not casting you away. God doesn't think what you're thinking about yourself. You think you're worthless. Your, your value is based on what Christ thinks of you, not what you think of you. And your thinking is wrong. You see, the, we, we're, we, we're tempted to think that humility is degrading ourselves. Humility is not putting any confidence in the flesh, but everything in God. And so David here cries out with dependence upon God, do not cast me 
away. Do not discard me from use. In fact, the, 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 he says, do not cast me away from your presence. And this is the first way in which he asks God. And this is personally. This is him personally in the presence of God. If we, if we would, would note that in Psalm 16, in verse 11, and I'm going to turn there quickly. Psalm 16, uh, this was read, Isaiah read this verse already this morning. In Psalm 16, and in verse 11, he says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David realized in the presence of God was where his relationship was growing. And when he was when he was, uh, was in his sin, he didn't know the joy of his salvation. He didn't know the joy that came in li by living in the presence of God. And so he is asking here for his person, his personal, his personal request is that, Lord, don't cast me out of your presence. I need to be in your presence. I won't do life without being in your presence. Moses told the, told the Lord when the Lord said, separate yourself from this people. I'm angry with these people. I'm going to destroy them. We'll make a great nation of you. And I'm going to, I'm going to let you... Well, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong... It's when he said, I'm going to let you go on to the land. I'm going to let the angel come and lead you. I'm not going with you. And, Lord, and Moses told the Lord, he said, if your presence does not go before us, neither will I. And that's exactly where David is at. He cannot be outside the presence of God. He knows he will not be sustained apart from God. But we have, and that word presence there literally means from before your face. Do not let me be cast out from before your face. Someone who's near to you, someone who's dear to you, you know, there are people you talk with. There are people you relate to. There are people you see face to face many times during the, during the week or during the day. And so it was with David. He did not want that relationship to be discarded. Secondly, we note that David says, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What's David meaning here? Again, I want us to note that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for specific work, for a work that is God had laid upon his people to do. And let's note what David is talking about here. If we look at 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14, it reads this way. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that was David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now the next verse is, is, is also very interesting. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. You see, when God put His Spirit upon David, 
to be king of Israel, he removed that same spirit from Saul. Because Saul was no more king of Israel. Although he was still living in the, in, in, in the, in the palace, he was still commanding the troops. He was still leading the servants. He was in, in the blessing of God. He had removed that ability to lead as God wanted him to lead. Now let's notice what replaced that in Saul. A distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. We don't read that that ever left Saul the rest of his days. That he was distressed and pressed upon and distraught the rest of his life. To have the Holy Spirit anointed is that God put his spirit upon David when he was appointed king of Israel. And God put that spirit upon him so that he would do his will. Now David is begging him, God, do not take away the Holy Spirit from me like you did with Saul when he disobeyed you. David understood that when Saul disobeyed God, there was an anointing of the Spirit of God that left him. And David said, don't take that away. I, 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 can't, I can't be here and, and lead these people as you've told me to lead them without your Spirit. If we look at Saul's life, Saul, when the Spirit was removed from him, he told, he told Samuel, even after Samuel told him, he said, look, the kingdom's being ripped away from you. It's going to be given to your neighbor. Saul said, look, just go with me now and, and make me great amongst the elders of the land. Let me just look good to the people. Even though the inside's gone, let me look good to everybody. You know what? David was just the opposite. His sin was exposed to the whole land. He confessed it, and he, and he turned from it. And he said, I don't care if this is who I'm known to be. God, don't let your Holy Spirit be taken from me, or else I can't do anything. There's a huge difference. One is concerned about the heart. The other is concerned about how he appears before others. Listen, friends, we got to have that same understanding. It's that same mentality. If God has put upon you a work to do, or if he's given you a, a task to be fulfilled, and he's given all of us work to do, he's filled us with his spirit so that we can preach the gospel to all nations. That starts right at your home. It starts right at your backyard. It starts right in your neighborhood. It starts right where you live. He's anointed you with the Spirit to do that. Are you more concerned about what you look like to your neighbors than you are about the Spirit of God working in you to show them the way of Christ? See, I think sometimes we get this backwards, don't we? We care more about how we look and how we appear and how things appear to others on the outside. And we neglect what we're anointed to do. We neglect the inner man 
You know, this is why David was a man after God's own heart. He cared about what's going on on the inside. And he cared about whether he was going to be able to do what God asked him to do. Do you know the need of God's presence in your life? You know, a, a, a true a child of God, when he's not at peace, when he's, 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 his joy of his salvation has ebbed, has, has, has kind of gone away from him, he gets pretty desperate. He gets, he, he, he remembers. He remembers what he had, but he remembers that he's going to stand before God. And the pain of standing before God and holding to sin is something he can't bear. So I ask you this morning, do you know that you need God's presence in your life? The Holy Spirit as a believer to aid you and to guide you and to lead you into truth. Do you, are you desperately depending on Him to restore what sin has damaged in your life and in your character? Are you depending upon Him to do that? You see, God asks us, He expects holiness from us, but we have to go to Him to make it happen. We are to ask Him for what He says we ought to have. Because ultimately, we can't produce what He's asking for apart from His Spirit that works within us. Do you receive comfort this morning knowing that God not only forgives, but He restores? God doesn't just say, oh, it's, it'll be okay. I'll let it go. Or I'll overlook this one. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a good feeling about it. That's not what it's about. But he's in the work of restoring, of bringing back, making things work again. That engine that's locked up, he's wanting to get it running again. Those gauges that don't work, he wants them to work like they ought to. There's a, there's a function of your being that he alone can give life to that we must depend upon Him for. Lastly, let's note the construction of the Spirit-filled life. The construction of a Spirit-filled life. Not only does God create in us a clean heart, not only does He give us the Holy Spirit within but David here says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The construction of a spiritual life, spirit-filled life, is restoring the joy of salvation. I, I think we forget what joy in our salvation really is sometimes. And all we have to do is look back at where we were saved from. And who saved us and what we're saved to. And, and the believer receives joy. Because he knows that he was under a weight that he could not get out of. He, was pay, he owed a debt he couldn't pay. And he's been, not only has that debt been paid, but he's been brought into the presence of the king. 
He's been made to feast at the king's table, and he will one day dwell forever with the king. And so, brothers and sisters, this is not just something God is going to just pass over. Once and done, we're just going to let you go. He's going to restore the joy. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's found when the victory in Christ over sin is realized. And the right relationship of God with God is restored and maintained. Remember in Psalm 1611, he said, In your presence is fullness of joy. You want joy? It's in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is here to bring the presence of God in our midst to us and put us in the presence of God. Isaiah 12, verse 3 says, Therefore with joy will you draw water from the well of salvation. With joy. That joy is, 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 is synonymous with the Christian life. So many times, friends, we have people who profess to be Christians. We have the old saying, they look like they were weaned on a dill pickle. I mean, they cannot, they're not joyful. Why? Do they realize where their salvation comes from? Have they forgotten that they were once lost in their old sin? Do they, have they... Have they not gotten the understanding of where they're headed? You see, salvation produces joy. Notice he says, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your generous spirit. I think the old King James says free spirit. Is that right? I think it is. Those of you who have the old King James... It's free spirit. Okay. The generous spirit is, 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 is the free, free spirit would be more of an old English uh, uh, linguistic term where it was thing, where things were free. We would use the term generous. And the, and, the, and the word is that God has blessed, that God is blessing you by his spirit and it's, and it's given freely. So free is a right word. But Generous is also a right word because it means that he's, he's abundant in giving. You know, David would have had reason to say that God could, could have shut the door on him. And I think we could all say that, even in our Christian life. As we've been walking with Christ, I've failed Christ so badly that he, he, would not, he does not have any right to say, you know, because of some merit in his life, i got to keep the door of salvation open. God could shut the door and be just in doing it. But he says, uphold me by your free spirit, even after I've messed all this up. Even after I have sinned so grievously and, and, and brought shame to you before the people. He says, he says, restore unto me and uphold me with your generous free spirit. Notice that the construction has a sowing and a, we and a reaping. A, 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 um, 
a reason, and a consequence. Notice he says, if you will restore to me the joy of my salvation, and you will uphold me by your generous spirit. Verse 13, then. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Listen, why do we lack teachers in the church? And I don't mean people who just are ordained to stand up here and preach. I'm talking about in your daily life, teachers who teach the Word of God to those who have questions. Why do we lack this? Are you trusting God to uphold you? Have you asked for that restoration? See, as He restores, He's, he's doing a work in you that you can teach then others. This is what God has done for me. See, it is by that word that sinners are converted. It's by the testimony of someone who has come to faith and has conquered sin by the grace of God that others are able to say, I want that too. You know, God has so uh, sovereignly willed that we are a part of the conversions of other people. It doesn't mean that we convert people. That's not what I'm trying to say. But God wants our testimony to be used for His glory in other people's lives. And, and, and the, that's what the church is to be about. You know, the, the grace of God that comes to us is, is that which we are to pass on. We're to hold it with with an open hand, because he's got, he's just giving so much more. As we pass it on, sinners hear, and they say, I've got to have that, because I too am in trouble with God. Notice that he says that in verse, in verse 13, the joyful response to the gospel is that you want to teach. Hold your finger here. Let's go back to Psalm 32. Let's go back to Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, we have, we have what's called a miskel in the, in the Hebrew. And it's, in, in my Bible, it says a contemplation at the beginning of the chapter. But it's really an insight it's David giving insight into what's going on in his life as he's repenting from this sin. And as we begin to look here, he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Why did David say that? Because David had just experienced that. He understood exactly what he was talking about. Because he had just experienced the experience of God convicting him. And, and the, 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 the sin lay heavy upon him. And there was no rest. We can go on. Verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned to summer, into the drought of summer. Selah. And David is simply saying, I was dying. I was wasting away under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling the people, this is what happens when you hold sin in your heart. This is what happens when you serve sin. It destroys you from the inside. So what does he say he did? I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Listen, brothers and sisters. How many people are blessed today because David wrote these words? The joy of his salvation returned and he was able to teach others. Would to God that he would make us all this kind of teachers. <clears throat> you know, I found such great joy and such conviction at the same time over this passage. Because I realize I'm not here for anything but the glory of God. And as, as you know, there was, there's no glory in David's sin, but as he turned from the Lord and they saw the, the forgiveness and the mercy of God upon him, sinners were changed. <clears throat> Let's notice what else he says. He's not done. Going, over, going down to verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Oh yes, the stain of blood was on his hands. That stain of killing Uriah. I don't understand what all that in, entails completely. But by what I hear from people who have been involved in murder this this guilt drives them to the grave unless the lord takes it away i've talked to people who have murdered and in the bondage of having the blood guiltiness of someone else on their hands is unbearable Listen, God is no stranger to that blood guiltiness. They did that to his son. And he asks, he says, deliver me, O God, from this blood guiltiness, from this bloodshed. And as a result, my tongue shall sing aloud. Of your righteousness. You see that word there for, for singing aloud. I'm sorry, the word for deliver, it means to snatch me out of that. Take just, just get me out of this blood guiltiness, Lord. It's to deliver out of the hand of another. And then he says, 
My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. This is the righteousness of God. The righteous justice that comes from God. It's the righteousness that overcomes sin. He said, I'm going to sing aloud that you have delivered me from the stain of the blood of this man upon my, my hands and what you did to deliver me from it. That's an awesome testimony. That's a tremendous eye-opener to another man who's guilty of murder. You see, there's nothing that God is unable to do. And that's what we must understand. David's not trying to get counseling. He's going to God and he's saying, I want to get to the bottom issue of my sin and I want to talk to somebody who can do something about it. And God is the one who will give me freedom from this bloodstain. And when he does, my tongue, not should, not can, not might, my tongue shall. It will happen. It's going to be a response. It's going to be a response. He goes on and he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Lord, give me the ability to speak about this. And the word show forth literally means to do it in a conspicuous, open, honest way. Something that's visible to all as a show and tell. You see, it's the forgiveness of God, friends, that empowers us to speak of His righteousness. Those who have forgive, been forgiven much love much. When we speak aloud of His righteousness, it comes from a heart of someone who knows that the righteousness of God is needed in their life. Turn back to Psalm 32, 10 and 11. He says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. You see, David is saying, he's, he's teaching sinners and transgressors what God does with his sin. And he says, you who are righteous, shout with joy. You know, let that joy just come forth. And what a difference we have in verse 11 from what we had at the beginning of the chapter where he was dying in his sin. And we have now here a rejoicing. It's something that people can't miss. Something that's obvious. My friend, the joy of the Lord needs to be obvious. The joy of the Lord needs to be obvious because His forgiveness needs to be obvious. Repentance must be obvious. 
it must be so clear and so plain that nobody misses it. Most of all, that you don't miss it. Because this is how you know that you know that you're saved. You see, assurance comes when God builds upon the new heart. And layer after layer after layer of good things He develops in your heart. And you begin to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Our merciful God, who's slow to anger, plenteous in mercy, abounding in mercy and truth. We just want to thank you, Lord, for the work that you did in David's life. And what an example for us. To know, Lord, that we can come before you with anything and everything. And it doesn't matter what people think of us. You will cleanse us. As your Spirit works in us, Lord, I pray that the joy of salvation may be known from each person here who walks with you today. Father, I pray for those who don't know you. Oh God, I pray that something of the testimony of your salvation, changing men from walking in darkness to those who walk in light, those who are dying under the burden of sin to those who rejoice in the righteousness of Christ. I pray that this testimony would reach to them, Lord. That you would touch their heart. That their hearts could be drawn to you, Lord, and would be, they would be able to put their faith in you, trust in you, and repent and turn to you, Lord. We lift you up, Lord, and we exalt you. We pray a blessing on this congregation, Father, that as they go this week, Lord, I pray, open their mouths that they may speak and sing aloud of your righteousness. That the truth of your salvation may be made known to all around them. Lord, give us boldness because, Lord, you have forgiven us so much. And I pray that we would remember who you are and from where we have come and where you are taking us. So we ask for your word to, be, to bear fruit in our hearts, that we may truly give you glory in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.